Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. Historians make notoriously bad predictors of the future. So when, in our last football-themed podcast, Tom Holland and I predicted that England would crash out humiliatingly to the Germans in the second round of Euro 2020, we knew, of course, that we would be proved comprehensively wrong. And so we were. Tom, great scenes. England beating Germany in a major tournament for the first time well, for the first time for 20 years, but the first time in the knockouts since 1966. Great scenes indeed, which I witnessed live, but I think you didn't. Um, That's right. <laughs> as you said in the uh, the episode we recorded uh, on Anglo-German uh, relations preceding, the, preceding that match, um, you said that you had to go to your son's, was play. it a sports day? No, it was play. It was play a play. I was a play. Um, yes, I basically, I just basically have a succession of school themed events. So, Sports Day was about ten days ago, and I missed something else because of Sports Day. And this was and mermaids this, against pirates. Pirates versus mermaids. It was the big clash that everybody was talking about, <laughs> and I'm happy to report that it ended in a score draw with honours even. And to my, so I went obviously in a very sort of anxious, Grumpy. yeah, in a very Twitchy. anxious way, and. uh as I was sort of sitting there deliberately not, you know, just the clock had just ticked past five o'clock. So the kickoff had begun, had happened. And uh, I was deliberately not catching anybody's eye, looking at any of the other dads or anything like this, because I was recording the match and determined to get back to watch it. And to my relief, the very admirable music teacher, Mr. Price, gave an announcement. And he said, do not check your phones. Do not communicate anything about the match because some of us are recording it. What a wise man. Yeah, it was it was very impressive. That to me is the mark of a great schoolmaster, which yes. it clearly is. And so you managed to see it not knowing the result. So I got home, I didn't look out the window of the car. I ran into the house the back way so I wouldn't go past our neighbor's front window where they could see they were still watching the final scenes and I didn't want to see the expression on their faces. And then we watched the whole thing. Yeah, it's brilliant. It was brilliant. I know this is a tragic insight into my tortured psyche. No, um, not at all. I I can't imagine anything worse than than than, than... <laughs> Having to miss out on that. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, pretending to take an interest in your son's play. I'm sure you did take an interest. I, d- I did in take an interest play, in the play. I mean, but, I'm, yeah. But, um, well, but, I, I, not to boast or anything. He's going to boast? I'm going to boast. Um, I, I was rather stressed. I, I needed England to win um, in full time. Because? Because at seven o'clock, I had to go and interview Francis Fukuyama, author the of The End of History. The End of History. Um, so, and, uh, and I'd already put him off an hour. Yeah. And that was, that was the best. Francis Fukuyama, a big football, a big admirer of the Euros. So we started talking. I was rather intimidated to be talking to this, you know, this great luminary. Um, so I didn't at the beginning explain why I'd pushed, pushed it back an hour and why I was, had a big yeah. smirk on my face. Yeah, St. George's Cross thing. painted on your face. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I didn't explain that. Um, and then by the end, uh, things had sufficiently warmed up that I, I, I gave the reason. And of course, his whole thesis is that the end of history means that... Um, England has won. 
<laughs> well, essentially, um, you know, the, 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 the violent passions and rivalries that previously had convulsed European history yeah. are, are now at an end. Francis, um, you're, but you're, you're, you're but, quite but, wrong. But he, no, but he's all in favour of international sporting competitions because he thinks that uh, that, in, that, that preserves the end of history because we're channeling our our passions and our enthusiasms into um, right. abusing each other on terraces ab- rather than kind of bombing Hamburg. That's so, absolute bulldash, though. I mean, the football war in Central America. Are you calling Francis Fukuyama what he said, bulldash? And also the breakup of the breakup of Yugoslavia was preceded by, you know, the sort of signs of it were on the football field. The um, future Croat captain, Zvonimir Boban, fighting riot police in about 1990. Um, was well, is often Dominic? is often used as a as a harbinger of of the of the bloodshed to come. I, I didn't I didn't tell him that. You should have done. You should no, have I, done. You missed your chance. He's Francis Fukuyama. You, I, yeah, but you're Tom Holland. Have some who, who, have who faith in to, yourself, man. Have to, faith in yourself. Who right. am I to lecture Francis Fukuyama on sport? Anyway, this is all by the by. The, the reason that we're back here with with a special is um, that England are meeting Ukraine in Rome. And so yes. we, we did an episode on Anglo-German relations, which obviously there's quite a lot to talk about. Anglo-Ukrainian relations, a bit more of a challenge, isn't it? There's more than you'd think. I mean, Ukraine is, let's start off by saying Ukraine is an unbelievably interesting country. I mean, uh, Kievan Rus, as it began, and yeah. part of the... Then Very atta- dramatic. Attacked by the Mongols. So it's got a Viking stuff, which I'm sure we're going to come back to, sort of Viking involvement. Then it's totally destroyed isn't it by the mongols becomes part of the polish lithuanian commonwealth which i always think we should do a podcast about because it's just such a strange state um carved up between the austrian and russian empires i mean there's so much to talk about with ukraine actually i mean admittedly we haven't quite got mentioned the english elements but we'll come to that okay well i've i'm going to say something provocative which is that if ukraine beat england football will be going home a, a ludicrous view, and I'd like to hear you justify it. Okay, I will do that. So the word football, compound yeah. word, foot and ball. Thanks for that. <laughs> what are, What are the origins of these words? What's What's the, the etymological ancestry? Well, in, in, English is an Indo-European language, and where is the homeland of the Indo-Europeans? Is it the steppes of Ukraine? It is. Yeah, southern Russia and steps of Ukraine. So above uh, the Caspian and the Black Sea. I mean, that's the almost overwhelming consensus. That right. It's, it's you know, obviously there are people who think maybe the that- Indo-Europeans came from Anatolia or from Atlantis or India or but but generally that's the consensus opinion. So that means that um, that basically so the word foot, yeah. the, the the original the the kind of you know, we we don't know what the Proto-Indo-European word was, but linguists have kind of basically worked out that it was something along the lines of pods or ped so you get you get you know that, that you get that in latin in greek yes. in yeah. sanskrit you get pa in french um and the germanic strand the p turned to an f but the best one is ball and <laughs> it was in old english it was bial yeah in proto-germanic apparently it was balus and in Proto-Indo-European, it was Bial, which apparently meant... Just say that low. again. Say that last one again. Bial. <laughs> That's how they spoke okay. on the steps in right. 4000 BC. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that meant blow, inflate, swell. So it's a kind of, you know, like a, a blown up ball. 
Okay, but Tom, this is a claim you could make about almost anything, right? I mean, you yeah, could claim dishwashers for Ukrainian because the word for dish comes from the Indo-European yeah, if, if I was, or something. If I was doing a, a podcast about Anglo-Ukrainian attitudes to dishwashers, that's exactly the <laughs> argument I would make. Right. But since since this is um, prompted by a football match, I'm focusing on football. So okay, football so will f- be going home. Yeah. Well, the word. I, 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 I mean, I, not the not the practice. The word. Yes, the word. I agree it's a bit of a stretch, but I thought you'd be more impressed by that than you No, I am be. impressed. I, I mean, I'll tell you who would have been impressed by that, the late J.R.R. Tolkien. He was a great yes, man he would. for the, yeah, of course. For yes, the roots of loved. words. Yeah. He would have loved that. So you've you've ticked that box, if he's listening, which he isn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, if he were listening, dead. he'd really enjoy it. Anyway, this is glassy podcast. Um, yeah. Do you have, I believe, I, I'm confident you have something more substantive to offer about, surely there must have been Anglo-Saxons. They were involved in the Ukraine. Almost certainly. Yes, they were. So so we talked about um, the Viking origins of Kiev. Yeah. Um, and the Rus, which mean rowers, were basically Swedes who came down the great rivers. Um, Vladimir was, the Great. Yes. Uh, and they established um, Kiev as a kind of um, stronghold controlling the trade routes. Um, and it became a kind of a, a, a piratical empire. Yeah. Um, and... Vladimir of Kiev converts to Christianity, the, the, the Christianity that you get in Constantinople, because he, he didn't want to become Muslim because he couldn't drink. He <laughs> thought that the cathedrals of the, the Latin Christians were not as impressive as Hagia Sophia. And don't, so he, don't they go down and they see the Hagia Sophia and they're absolutely astounded. Yeah, they, they, say, they say, you know, I had not thought that anything so beautiful could be seen. He, he thinks it's a vision of heaven. And so that persuades him to sign up to the Byzantine form of Christianity. And so the the um, the Kievan Rus are absorbed into the world of Byzantium. Uh, and they have a slightly kind of ambivalent status because the Vikings are, are perpetually coming down and attacking Constantinople. But as they get converted to Christianity, um, so they become kind of allies of, of, of the Byzantine empires, emperors. And um, they start to recruit uh, Vikings as personal guards for the emperor uh, on yeah. the assumption that they are kind of neutral, that they can be relied upon. Then um, this is the famous Varangian guard. After 1066, large numbers of um, displaced Anglo-Saxon aristocrats, nobility, seem to have migrated to Constantinople and to have joined the Varangian guard. And there are various reports, various um, kind of sagas, so on, Saying that they arrive when um, Constantinople is under siege, uh, presumably by the by the um, by the Turks, um, they play a, a heroic role in this. And as a reward, the emperor says, "You know, what what can we give you?" And some of yeah. them say, "We would like to form a new England." And there's a wonderful paper by the historian Caitlin Green, who who writes fabulous stuff about all kinds of intriguing early medieval, you know. Byzantine coins that pop up in Japan and so on. She's written this fantastic piece about saying, was there truth to this? Did um, did the Byzantine emperor grant a New England to yeah. the Anglo-Saxon Varangians? And she argues that it was it was um, granted to them on Crimea. Okay, and she said, you know, there are there are various kind of um, chronicles, sagas throughout the Middle Ages that make reference to this. Um, in the Edward saga, which is 14th century Icelandic saga, but drawing on apparently on 12th century material, 
To the towns that were in the land and to those which they built, they gave the names of the towns in England. They called them both London and York and by the names of other great towns in England. So there was and a New York in Crimea. There was a New York, a New England in Crimea, apparently. Uh, and as evidence for this, Caitlin um, cites various Italian charts from the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, which mention a Londina, which is presumably yeah. London, yeah, and a, a place called Sasako, which is Saxon, so Saxon town. Nice. Which, you know, so the evidence there That's is, amazing. you know, it's, it's tantalizing, yeah. but I think certainly strong enough for a podcast on Anglo-Ukrainian it, Well, if Vladimir, if Vladimir Putin is listening to this, he will be raging. I mean, he will have cancelled his subscription because he would say Ukraine and Crimea are not the same. If Ukrainian listeners are listening, they will be writing, Well, they will yes. be ordering your books in triumph and saying... But, but we're God, looking at this from the medieval perspective, Dominic, and yeah. Vladimir is baptised, Vladimir, the, the, the first um, Ukrainian to be Christian, is baptised in Crimea. Right, I did not know. That's yes. interesting. So, well, that's that's so why Crimea that's, is part of the Ukrainian world, then, without any question. Yes, yeah, absolutely. But that's also why it's so significant for Vladimir Putin and Russia is that it's seen as the birthplace of of um, Russian Christianity as well. Right. So, so when when the Russians um, annexed Crimea, there were kinds of extraordinary photos of priests with their long beards casting holy water onto jets and <laughs> blessing the um, yeah. the Russian forces as they were moving into a next Crimea. So it's it Crimea is a kind of holy place. So it's, it's, kind like, of, it's the Canterbury. Yeah, of, or a bit of, like Kosovo for the Serbs. So it's this sort of, you know, this sort of place that's become slightly detached from the, you know, it's not part of the the main sort of territory but it, Kosovo is a battle right I mean it's it's yeah Kosovo is a battle but it has a feet. sacred it has a sacred significance for but I think I think for um for both Ukrainians U Ukrainians and Russians the the fact that it's baptismal that it's yeah. it's the the wellspring of the Christianity of both the Ukrainians and the Russians gives it I mean it gives it a peculiar resonance because it it gives it you know it's like Canterbury or Rome or, or even yeah. Jerusalem it has that kind of holiness to it that okay um and so, and so when, when um, uh, Potemkin captures Crimea for Catherine the Great. From the Turks, from the Ottomans, from the Turks, isn't it? Yeah. He, he says to her, you know, we have, we have captured the, the birthplace of Russian Christianity. And this is what joins us to Constantinople. And he, he, he name references Pompey the Great. He name references Alexander. He says this joins us to the, the classical traditions and the Christian traditions of our you know, our, our, our Russia, Russia as the third Rome. Um, so it's sacred, you know, it has this kind of holiness both to the Ukrainians and to the Russians. But of course, to, to most um, English speaking or certainly most British listeners, Crimea has a significance um, with the Crimean War. It's what yes. every, I mean, people don't really think about the Crimean War now, but there was a time when the Crimean War loomed so large thanks to Tennyson and his poem, uh, The Charge of the Light Brigade, The Valley of Death and all that sort of stuff. Um, the first modern war, some people might say, the Crimean War, do you think? Yeah, so the Crimean War is um, fought by a uh, Turkish-Anglo-French alliance. Such a strange war. Yes, against the Russians. Um, and it's kind of centred around Sevastopol, isn't it? Yeah, it's 1853 to 1856. Um, um, the, 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 sort of, the trigger for the war is who administers the holy places in Ottoman-occupied Israel and Palestine. So that's another example of how this stuff really matters. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Who owns the holy places? Yes. It's also about French and Russian sort of national virility. They both 
you know, the Russians are expanding. The Ottoman Empire is 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 sort of breaking up. The French want to, and the British want to preserve the Ottoman Empire. They want to stop the Russians getting the Straits, the uh, sort of uh, Constantinople, and the gateway to the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. Um, and this sort of blows up into this incredibly vicious war, but also the uh, war with railways, with telegraphs, with photography, with Florence Nightingale. War correspondence, isn't it? The Times sends a correspondent and it's the first yes. one where you get reports from the front. Um, and it's the, it's the first kind of major European war that Britain's fought and indeed the French since um, the Napoleonic Wars. And there are various kind of generals out there, who British generals who keep getting muddled up. And yeah, they're, they're, keep, it's a, let's attack the French. It's completely rather than the Russians. It's a bit of a shambles, isn't it? The Crimean War. So most famously, and actually, we talked about we've talked about him a few times. So it seems mad not to mention Flashman. The great Crimean War book, I think, is Flashman at the Charge, in which Flashman is in the, the yes. thick of all the action. So, and all these characters, Lord Cardigan, and all these people who absolutely despise Flashman, are charging towards Russian guns and being massacred and so on. So that so, so from the footballing point of view. There yeah. are two key engagements, two key approaches to attacking your enemy that the Crimean War exemplifies. So you have the charge of the Light Brigade, yeah. which is full on, you know, let's open with Grealish, attack. That's Kevin Keegan's England, yes. 2000. Um, which goes disastrously wrong. Yeah. And then you've got the thin red line. Uh, and Scottish listeners, I hope will forgive me, the thin red line is actually, it's it's a Scottish regiment. It's the Sutherland Highlanders. Um, but from the point of view of this podcast, let's say British, English, whatever. Um, and that's where um, a, a Russian cavalry force is approaching. They are kind of stranded. It's Colin Campbell who commands them, lines them up, not in four, because they don't have enough to do that. That's the standard approach. He, he lines them up in, so they're kind of, they're too deep. And this is the thin red line, provocative yeah. phrase. Yeah. So that implies defence holding out. So um I guess Gareth Southgate is a, a kind of thin red line man. He is. He's rather yeah, than yes, a, he is. there are my there are your guns, my lord. Attack! Yeah, exactly. So let's so, yeah. so, let's, the, so the charge of the light brigade. Yeah, just talk us through <laughs> that because oh. it's such a great story. Um, so the charge of the light brigade is an utter shambles. Now I haven't come prepared for this, Tom. So I'm just trying to remember it. Uh, the Russians' guns are at the top of a valley, aren't they? And at the um, bottom of a valley, I think. At the bottom of the valley, but at one end of the valley anyway. Yeah, they're yeah. at some end of the valley. So this is a balaclava. Um, hen, you know the uh, the nice the helmet, woolen yeah. mask. Um, and uh, now, so I remember the Russians are withdrawing, and the the commander says, "You know, go and basically get the guns before they withdraw." And but he, uh, somehow, in the course of this being relayed to the light brigade, they end up pointing at the wrong guns. That's right, isn't it? The, he says, "They're real guns." <laughs> so the chain of command: there are three lords, all of he, whom are useless. Yeah. So there's Lord Raglan. That's right. Who yeah. fought in the Napoleonic Wars. And he's yeah. the one who keeps saying, go and attack the French. <laughs> yeah. Despite the fact that the French are his allies. Yeah. And he's about kind of 90 and incredibly doddery. Yeah. Then there's Lord Lucan, ancestor yes. of the Lord Lucan, who will... He doesn't, course, he doesn't vanish. disappear. He doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't disappear. And he, I think, is the brother-in-law of Lord Cardigan. Now, Lord Cardigan commands, is a shame, is a ridiculous who command, man. Who commands <laughs> the Light Brigade. Uh, but yeah. they detest each other. Yes. And then there's a guy called Nolan. He's the intermediary, isn't the he? Intermediary. He carries the message. Yeah. And because none of them are speaking to each other, <laughs> it, 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 it doesn't, it doesn't <laughs> provide for great communication. And so basically there's, there's a kind of, there's a, a snarl up. Uh, Cardigan says, which guns do you mean? Nolan gestures. And then I think 
gets shot, gets killed, kind of. He speaks first, though, doesn't he? Doesn't he say, there are your guns, my lord, or something? Yes. Go and yes. get them or whatever. <laughs> Pointing so, vaguely into the distance. And the the one rule of, of, of war is that if you have cavalry, and particularly light cavalry, you don't use it to charge artillery no. head Madness. on. Yeah. So Cardigan thinks this is mad, but because he's been given the order and because he is, um, he's just insanely arrogant and yeah. stiff-necked. He's just a proud. Victorian British general, right? He, so just, he just does crazy. what he does. <laughs> yeah. Inventor of the cardigan, of course. Is he the inventor of the cardigan? I think, so. I think that's why you know he wears it over his shoulder, doesn't he? Like the kind of jacket. I didn't know that. I think I, so. I think <laughs> that's so. a great fact. Um, and so they they charge down. They get ex- absolutely devastated, and then the survivors kind of trot back. But you know what? There's now a revisionist history of this, as with all disastrous British battles, a bit like you know the Somme or Passchendaele or whatever. There are military historians now who actually who say, well, actually, you know... It's quite good, was it? Yeah, we got the results we wanted or whatever. I mean, I don't... Yeah, that's campaign. very football manager. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right, we lost 7-0. But, <laughs> but you know... <laughs> We've learned we, lessons. We go again on Tuesday. Provide the um, platform. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's lots to build on. The last but of game, course, but, but I mean, it's also very... Um, I mean, I guess this is, this is something that uh, football sport perhaps has inherited. We love a, a kind of... A bloody disaster. Of course we do. Yeah. And then it's we a can, book, isn't it? Uh, heroic failure in the British. Um, yeah. So get the Gaza bursting into tears. Exactly. As we it's, get knocked out. Yeah. I mean, people, I mean, it lives on in the in, that, in that's British why it, it feels slightly un-English to be making sort of unruffled progress through a tournament as we have been doing for the last few games. And so, in a sense, Tennyson's poem on the charge of the Light Brigade kind of absolutely establishes the template for that. I yeah. mean, there's, there is a, a kind of football chant quality to it. Well, I think post-colonial historians are sort of not people I normally quote um, with enormous, overwhelming admiration, but they would say um, a lot of this stuff is motivated by guilt, they think, or sort of bad conscience, that the sort of British create this cult of martyrdom, you know, and, oh, we're so outnumbered with the underdogs and we performed heroically and were beaten to sort of, you know, to to sort of cope with the fact that... um, Actually, they're just mowing people down with Gatling guns. Except on. on this occasion, it's because we're grotesquely incompetent. Yeah. And I think actually this is the other thing. So there's a lot of fan misbehavior. There's a lot of discontent with the management, which is very football. And there's fan misbehavior. So in England, the war is quite unpopular with, um, I think we're particularly with the Tories and with Tory voters. And there's all these scenes where people are pelting. Um, they have, there are snowball riots where the, where the fans, as it were, are pelting. I, don't, I think they were pelting, pelting like recruiting officers or something with snowballs. Um, and the government fought, well, the Earl of Aberdeen, who was the Prime Minister, falls, and then Palmerston takes over. And of course, Palmerston's a great man for attacking sending foreigners. Gunboats. Yeah, sending yeah. gunboats. There are, there, there are legacies of the Crimean War in lots of towns still. And um, these, these, when we finally, at the end of the war, we captured Sebastopol, um, there's loads of old Russian guns, cannons, and they were all brought home and they were sent all around the country. I mean, there were some in, you know, there were sent to like Hartlepool. Every town wanted one, particularly towns that had support, strongly supported the war. So there's one in Abingdon and there's there's loads in Canada, actually. There's about 20 still in Canada, these Sebastopol guns, um, which was sort of, you know, hurrah, hurrah, we've captured these old Russian cannons. And then some of them were melted down in the Second World War um, to, you know, build Spitfires or something. So there were sort of weird, you know, relics of um, the Crimean War in sort of market towns all over England. Oh, we're just getting a message from our producer. 
Victoria Cross medals are still made out of melted down Sebastopol guns. That is controversial. I believe. I, I think so, the people have analysed Victoria Cross medals and said, "Are they Honestly, really dominate? Just stop ruining. <laughs> stop ruining our facts. Yeah, stop, stop, stop it with your with your with your historical truths. Well, um, I mean, and also, of course, um, the other legacy is uh, nursing. Florence, so Florence Nightingale, Nightingale yeah. and Mary yeah. Seacole. Yes, who in a way has become a kind of icon to the extent that she's replaced Florence Nightingale. Even though she wasn't a nurse, I think she. I think she basically just ran a hotel. Every school child in Britain now learns about Mary Seacole, don't they? I mean, isn't yes. that the sort of? And but usually this is prefaced with the words, "She's written out of history, and nobody reads about <laughs> her now." Well, I, th- I think it's kind of it's it's an interesting example of the way in which um, we continue to mythologize people, yeah, from British imperial history, even in the even in the twenty first century. Um, yes. Mary, Mary Seacole is an entirely mythologized person in exactly the way that um, I guess. The Earl of Cardington was. Um, Cardington? Yeah, Cardigan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Tom, you know, I thought this podcast would take about 10 minutes uh, on Anglo-Ukrainian relations, and partly because we haven't really talked massively about Anglo-Ukrainian relations. We've we've now got to the end of the first half. Well, there are going to be... It is going to be a game of two halves. Um, um, shall I end it by reading a chunk of Tennyson? I think that would be absolutely brilliant. So we'll go out on Tennyson, and you can yeah. imagine... Let's hope that this doesn't... <laughs> prefigure what happens in Rome. Forward the light brigade, was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldier knew someone had blundered, theirs not to make reply, theirs not to reason why, theirs but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Hello, welcome back to uh, a Rest is History special on Anglo-Ukrainian relations. Um, as Dominic said before the break, I, I thought we might struggle to fill out 20 minutes on this. Um, but we've, I, I've, I basically, I've said everything that I know. I now have nothing more to add. But I Dominic, thought... is very, Dominic is very <laughs> confidently saying he's got stuff for another 20 minutes worth. So I, give it. I never, ever thought I would hear you say those words, Tom. Are you all right? You've said everything you know. I don't believe that. I don't know anything else about Anglo-Ukrainian relations. You don't know about Huzovka? No. Huzovka is such a great story. Okay, so... Does he have anything to do with the Donbass? um, Yes, and he's also not a person. He's a place. Okay, well, that shows how much (laughs) I know. (laughs) Okay. So so the Donbass, I did a a school geography project on it. Wow. On Donetsk and, uh, and and the sort of coal and iron... The one of the most industrial areas yeah. of Europe, and now, of course, at the centre of this. So that was this, in the seventies. This war, the Russian-Ukrainian yeah. kind of undeclared war that going on in Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, so I, I did geography projects on Chicago and yeah. on the Donbass. I've never been to either, but I, I, I feel I know them. Do you know what I did? It was my geography project. I did one on open cast mining. <laughs> of course, you did. <laughs> so depressing. I mean, I should have done. Uh, why didn't I get to do Chicago? It's so enjoyable. I can still draw the the map of the airport anyway. going out into the lake. Anyway, sorry, we're we're so I keep waiting for the podcast on open cast mining, but I don't think it's gonna <laughs> it will come. happen. All right, so mining brings us to the Donbass. So people remember they had um the Euro Maidan revolution in um Ukraine at the beginning of the twenty tens and uh the Russians annexed Crimea and then there was this fighting in the east, and during all this fighting uh, a thing went up on the internet and it said it's time for Donetsk, the city at the center of this, to be re, you know, the solution is for it to be reunited with the United Kingdom. You know, it should be neither Russian nor Ukrainian, but British. And you might think that's ridiculous, but Donetsk did begin 
as a British foundation. So 18, late 1860s, the Russian Empire is very rapidly developing and um, they, they need to bring in talent to basically industrialize it. And they, they do a deal with a company called the Millwall Iron Works and Shipbuilding Company. So you could hardly find a more English company. And the Millwall Iron Works send over a man called John Hughes, who unfortunately for this podcast is Welsh. Um, so yeah, but he's come from he's come from Millwall, Tom. He's come from a Millwall company. So I I'm think sure, he I'm sure our Welsh listeners they will love this. Us they love bundling this. Wales into England. I'm not bundling Wales into podcast. England. I'm I'm elevating Wales above England. I think that's what I'm doing. Okay. Um, so John Hughes goes over. He's from Merthyr Tydville. He goes down to um, what's now Ukraine, and he picks his spot and he says this is the place iron and, and coal and stuff and he starts bringing over the russians don't have the skilled engineers and stuff so he brings over hundreds of largely welsh skilled um laborers and engineers and miners and so on to set up his factories and they do and by the end of the century there's about thirty thousand people living there a lot of them welsh or english there's an anglican church there are um, there's an English-speaking school. So and this is what's going to become Donetsk. And at the time, it's called Hughesovka. So it's named after John Hughes. And it's basically a sort of British and mixed British, Ukrainian and Russian community in Ukraine. And it's one of the sort of big industrial, becoming one of the already one of the big industrial powerhouses of Central and Eastern Europe. And basically, it continues as that until the Russian Revolution when all the Brits are kicked out. so And, and it's extraordinary. Some of them have gone from rags to riches to rags again. So they've come from you know nothing in South Wales. They've worked their way up. They go to, um, they've gone out to the Russian Empire and they've made a lot of money and they live in, you know, with servants and things. And then the Russians kick them out and they come back to Wales with nothing. So that's an extraordinary story. And of course, the, it, it doesn't stay as Huzovka. It is renamed <laughs> Stalino. Uh, and then shame. ends up, what and then shame. ends up becoming Donetsk. Is there so, any move to rename it, give it back its original name? I don't think so. I think basically the Constantinople, Russians, the Russians, yeah, the Russians and the Ukrainians are fighting very sort of fiercely over it. So, so making it British again, I mean, making it British again would be a kind of answer, wouldn't it? Would you could give it an MP, could be a county, I suppose. Great, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, the Donbass, and they probably have got some know. great footballers, and then they could play for England. Yeah, I mean, uh, Shakhtar Donetsk uh, was often in the Champions League. Um, they imported a lot of Brazilian players. I don't think they relied on local talent um, particularly. They had a very fetching kind of orangey strip. Um, I think they'd do very well in the Premier League. I'd like to see them in the Premier League. Well, but there's also it? another sort of quite weird Welsh connection. So Ukraine has this absolutely ghastly um, 20th century history. I mean, I read something the other day when I was thinking about this that – some American scholar who's basically said there is no example anywhere in the world of a country that has sort of suffered more chaotic and miserable time than Ukraine after the First World War. So after the First World War, I think there were at one point there are seven different armies fighting for control of Ukraine. So there's white Russians, there's the Bolsheviks, there's some anarchists, there's the Poles. There's, I think, two different groups of Ukrainian nationalists. So it's just mm. an absolute nightmare. And that can, continues um, because Ukraine has the famine in the early 1930s. And then obviously... So that's under the, Stalin. 
you know, the Stalin and the Nazis attack. Some of them help the Nazis, some of them fight against the Nazis, the Red Army counterattacks. It's just, then there's a kind yeah. of more stuff with the Poles going on. It's just an utter, utter, utter nightmare. And the historian Timothy Snyder has this book, Bloodlands, and Ukraine is absolutely the center of this, this sort of blo- literally, literally blood-soaked territory um, where people are being thrown into Shot mass and, graves and all this yeah. stuff. But amid all this... Um, one of the massive events in Ukrainian identity is the Holodmor, the famine of the early 1930s. And it's another, it's a British journalist who exposes this, a man called Gareth Jones, another Welshman. Uh, There's a very, film about him, wasn't there? Just yeah, I, I think by common consent of quite a poor film, actually. Um, mm. James Norton played him. He's, uh, you know, he's from Barry in, in South Wales. He works for the Times. He goes to Russia and to Ukraine. Um, now, here's an amazing um, connection. His mother had worked in Huzovka as the tutor of John Hughes's son. Only connect. Yeah, isn't that bizarre? What that a connect- bizarre. And, by com- and then he doesn't have a massive interest in Russia. He studies French, uh, Gareth Jones, I think at Cambridge, and then goes to work for the Times and ends up being sent back this place where his mother had worked as a tutor. But purely coincidentally. Purely coincidentally. And he discovers that um, the famine is happening and he writes reports about it in the Times. And then probably the most one of the most famous journalistic scandals of the 20th century, um, a man called Walter Durante, who worked for the New York Times, who was also British-born, um, but had become American. Durante is kind of in with Stalin. He writes these appalling, appalling stories in the New York Times saying that Gareth Jones is lying. And that there was no famine. And actually, Durante knew that Jones was telling the truth. But f- through journalistic competition <laughs> and through wanting to keep in with Stalin, um, he he just um, lied about it. The New York and, Times, eh? Well, <laughs> New York Ti- you know my opinion of the New York Times, Tom, is, I mean, there are very few newspapers I hold in lower regard than the New York Times. So I, there's part of me that is very satisfied by telling this story. Um, I- but uh, poor old Jones comes to a very sticky end. He goes off to Mongolia. After being in Ukraine, he's banned from Russia from from the Soviet Union. He goes I'm not off surprised. To, he goes off to Mongolia and the he's murdered. I think probably by the NKVD by Stalin's um, mm. secret police. So it's a very unfortunate ending. But you know, if things get a bit testy on the pitch on Saturday night, the England players should remind the Ukrainians that Britain has a history of looking out for Ukraine and sticking up for it when others were lying. And the Crimea. The Crimea is New England. Yeah. I mean, that would go down very badly because the Crimea will be a sore spot um, for the Ukrainian players, I imagine. So um, I, d- yes. I don't think... I, don't so think, our, I think pl- ge- just generally, I think just keep off the topic of history. Probably <laughs> safest. Do you think... Actually, as a rule of thumb. Yeah. Harry, you know, Harry Maguire is meant to be a great um, history buff because is when he? he was arrested... So Harry Maguire, for those people who don't know, is the sort of enormous... Huge-headed. Huge-headed <laughs> England centre-back. Very... Very underrated player, in my view. Anyway, Harry Maguire was arrested in Greece. He was, Greece, wasn't of course. He? Yes. Greece, of course, has its own connections with Ukraine because there were Greek settlements, weren't there? Um, yeah, in, in Crimea and so on. So Harry Maguire was arrested in Greece, and apparently the Greek police claimed he'd been misbehaving or he'd been involved. Well, that's I, I'm probably introducing him now. I don't think he had been misbehaving. I think he'd have been some fracker in a nightclub or similar. Um, or and they've then been a fracker with the police, and um, the police claimed that Harry Maguire had shouted. I won't say exactly. He shouted, "F the F F the Greek police," 
F, Greek civilization. <laughs> Which, and it, when I heard that, I thought, I don't genuinely believe that the captain of Manchester United <laughs> shouted about Greek civilization at three o'clock in the morning as he was being bundled into a <laughs> into the back of a police van. You know, does Harry Maguire have strong views about <laughs> yes. Aristotle, <laughs> Athenian imperialism? <laughs> yeah. He's, Exactly. I've always been a Persian man. Xerxes was framed. Damn you for invading Sicily. (laughs) Yeah. Never forget. (laughs) Well, so, I mean, I I think it's unlikely that he will. Did you see this huge skull that got discovered? Of Harry Maguire or of some other person? Uh, Adam Rutherford wittily said that Harry Maguire looked like this, this incredible skull that was found in China. There's something that always I find very satisfying about watching English sporting teams is when they look like people from the First World War mm-hmm. and Harry, or, or Second World War from newsreels and stuff. And Harry Maguire absolutely he has that sl- slightly frowning, slightly mm-hmm. pained, anxious expression. Yeah, about someone English, about to go over the top. Or somebody going abroad. I always think of yes. English people when they were filmed going abroad. Sort of people like the miners from Derbyshire in the 1950s who famously went on holiday to Italy on a coach tour with... Um, they packed the, the inside of the coach with tins of baked beans because they were suspicious of the Italian food. I think Harry Maguire is absolutely a man of that ilk. Whereas um, Jack Grealish, I think, looks like someone out of Dickens. Do you? I think I can definitely see Jack Grealish in the First World War. He the does, kind of, but I think, but I the can, Joker I can of the trench, all that sort of. He's the artful dodger, you know, you know doing his hair, brill creamed hair in the trench, going off to the cheery, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I, I, very popular with the local girls the, yeah. in, the, in the bombed out French town that they've they passed through. And um, Harry Kane looks like a Habsburg prince. Yes, he does. He's got the yes, he absolutely does. That's a very good call. So he could have. So I'd ruled. say Harry Maguire. Harry, Harry Maguire is First World War. Yeah, Jack Grealish is Victorian. Harry Kane is 16th century. Well, I see. Harry Kane is the kind of man who could have ruled Western Ukraine, Galicia. He could have visited Lviv. On um, sort of imperial vi- archducal visits, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, I think we're spiralling off here. <laughs> um, I think I think we'll be losing our listeners. So, um, Dominic, if um, suppose England win, yes, let's. Uh, and I think I think we should say uh, we we think they're going to lose because it worked last time. Didn't yeah, it, it did work. So I we think we'll lose. lose. I think it'll lose. be very frustrating, and we'll lose one 0 Very disappointing. But, but um, if we. If we win, then there'd be opportunities for a further one, particularly if it's Denmark, England, Anglo-Danish relations. Oh, Anglo, a, Anglo rich. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great team. I mean, that's basically a podcast series um, rather than a podcast. Anglo uh, Anglo Czech relations. Well, I there's think one will be, obvious. Will be massive. another. Will be another another stretch. <laughs> yes. I think. Um, no, no, no. We've got. Well, I mean, apart from um, uh, Chamberlain, there's John yeah. D going to Prague. Okay, so there's great stuff. Yeah, great scenes. We just need to see. What would be a problem for us is, I think, a Czech-Ukrainian semi-final, <laughs> <laughs> because I think Czech-Ukrainian relations would be beyond even your mighty talents, oh, Tom. Well, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> let's let's hope England win, but as I say, we think they're going to lose. May the best. Well, good luck to the Ukrainians. I hope they play well. Um, I hope they. I, do, you know, to, to be honest, I think the Ukrainian it would victory would bring Ukrainians greater joy than us, and it I would. Think that they need it more. They've had a dreadful. They've had, they've a, had a bad ten year. years. They've, they've had, had a, a bad yeah. century. Uh, so, yeah. um, so if England lose, I will, I will bear that in mind. Yeah, that's a very nice note. That thought on which to end. Okay, thanks very much for listening. Bye bye. Okay, bye bye.
Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom... How often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe?